Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. If you have a Bible, a copy of scripture, you can go over to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be in verse 13. While you're turning there, let me just say just a couple of things. Number one, I'm, I'm extremely glad to be with you. I see some familiar faces. I've, I've been with this church before. It's been a little while, but it's, uh, yeah, it's been really good uh, to come back, to, to have the invitation to come back. I'm so thrilled to be here. I, I have a couple of older brothers that I've always looked up to, and I kind of view Redemption Church as kind of an older brother to our church, and we get to follow your example. We get to be encouraged by you. We look up to you. The Well Church does, and I do. I've gotten to spend time with Jeff and Chris and and uh, you guys are always an encouragement to me. So I think next time we get together, you're going to be at my play. I'm going to figure out a way to get you over there after First Timothy, because I think that's going to be really important for your church. Uh, but eventually we'll get you over there. The other thing is, I know parents, you probably have done this kids in the service with you thing. Um, I just want to say a word to you, parents, if you have little ones in here. I have a three-year-old daughter, so I am totally used to just talking over noise and movement. So I want you to feel like you can just chill. Like, I want them to be safe. So if they're, like, not safe, you can handle that. But, like, just let them be kids, and I can talk over that, uh, and it'll be great. I want them to hear about how much Jesus loves them as well. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'll read this. The word of the Lord reads this way. He, being Jesus, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your kindness in my life, that you allow me to be someone who gets to open your word and preach it and talk about it with other people. And so I thank you for your grace in my life that you've called me to do something that I am wildly undeserving of. And so I pray this morning that as we open your word in the gospel of Mark and we see the activity in the words and the kindness of Jesus. I pray that the grace that you have given would just jump off the page and flood our hearts and our minds today. I pray for that mom who feels not good enough 
And she compares herself to other people and other families and other houses. I pray that you would remind her of your love for her so that she might walk in freedom. I pray for that guy who feels like he doesn't measure up because he doesn't make as much money or he doesn't have as much of a responsibility in his world, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that you would remind him that his value is rooted in your love. I pray for the little ones in this room that as they color and draw and whisper, that they would also hear the whispers of your kindness in their souls so that one day soon they will tell mom and dad, I want Jesus. So Lord, would you do a work in this room? Holy Spirit, would you preach a better sermon than the one I have prepared? It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, throughout my life, I became a Christian at a fairly early age, so throughout my life, really historically, my tendency, when it came to my relationship with God and the way that I tended to view God, my kind of default was to view God as kind of a grumpy, uh, curmudgeon frustrated guy who, who really didn't love me or really didn't really didn't approve of me, but like felt obligated because of what Jesus had done, all this different kind of stuff, right? And so I just kind of had this mindset throughout much of my life, up until really recently, church planning has done a lot in my heart and my soul to remind me, like to teach me who God really is. But up until recently, my default was to view God as kind of just grumpy and frustrated all the time, right? I don't know if any of you share that history with me, uh, uh, but that's just kind of my default. Now, now, theologically, theologically through all that, I could have been able to articulate God's love to you, right? Like, even though that was my default, theologically, I could have told you about his mercy and his grace. I could have quoted chapter and verse, Romans 5, verse 8, that that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? I could have done all of those things, but there was something happening in my heart. There was disconnect, a disconnect between my theology of God and my experience of him, right? And the problem wasn't God. I think the problem was that I had a hard time believing. I had a hard time believing that a God that was so holy and righteous and perfect and other could actually love someone as broken and messed up as me. I had a hard time imagining that. And maybe you've been in that very same spot. Now, um, we all have different competing views. Excuse me, my, my iPad. This is, this is why most people don't do iPads because it just freaked out on me. Uh, <laughs> give me one second. Can we just have an awkward moment? Is that okay? Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. Here we go. Because I don't want to just talk for no reason. Here we go. All right. I had a hard time believing that God could really love someone as messed up as me. So here's what I want to do. I want want to just kind of walk you through this moment. Maybe you've experienced this in your life as well. Maybe you've had that moment. If you're a Christian, I'm speaking primarily to Christians. If if you've had that moment where you completely blew it, like you fell into the same temptation you fall into normally, you, you sin against God and you did so knowingly, what happens after that moment for a lot of us, it is not like a running back to the grace of God, right? 
What happens for a lot of us in that moment is that we don't go rehearse the good news of Jesus over ourselves. What happens in that moment oftentimes is we become like Adam and Eve in the garden and we begin to sow fig leaves for ourselves to hide our shame and then we begin to avoid God because we just kind of think he's frustrated with us, right? And so we don't go to his word. As a matter of fact, there are probably some of you who like yelled at your kids before you came here and all through that, that worship service, all through that, that, those, those songs, you could not really engage because you felt a little bit like a hypocrite. You felt a little bit like a fraud. And so we've taught ourselves that what we have to do in those moments when we royally blow it is that we have to earn our right standing before God back. We've got to get ourselves back into his good graces, right? And so we don't run to him, we run from him. And we think that we have to do good things so that God won't be so annoyed with me anymore. Now here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced of this this morning. That there are some of you in this room right now that you could articulate the idea of the love of God. But you would have a very difficult time saying honestly that you've ever experienced the love of God personally. You could talk about God's love, you could sing songs about God's love, but, but, but then you'd say, ah, I just don't know if I'm actually walking in God's love. Because for whatever reason, maybe, maybe for you, maybe your home life has been a bad experience. Maybe you grew up in a busted home where you never experienced the love of an earthly father. You never heard your dad say that he was proud of you or that he loved you, or, or maybe he just kind of assumed that you knew that, right? But you never got to receive those words from him. Maybe for you, your experiences in prior churches kind of taught you to believe that, that God was a little bit grumpy, right? That he was a little bit frustrated with you. And so you just kind of carried that with you. Or maybe for you, the culture in which we live, where you have to earn everything, your job, your paycheck, you have to earn your spot on the team. You have to earn your grades, right, kids? You have to earn everything. Your very value, you have to earn it. We live in this meritocracy. Maybe for you, you've been steeped in this culture so long that what's permeated your heart and your mind is this idea that everything that you have that is good is something you have to earn so that the idea of a God who loves you based on his desire to love you and not based on your worthiness to be loved, it's very hard to believe. So we have all these competing views of God. There's an old theologian named A.W. Tozer who said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about it. Why? Because it affects everything. It affects your marriage, it affects your parenting, it affects your work, it affects your relationship with your church. If you think God is just frustrated with you all the time, that's going to affect the way that you interact with other people. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, that might be a terrifying thought to you. So let me just cushion it with a, with a quote from a guy named C.S. Lewis. You might be more familiar with him. He, he said this, that that's actually not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what God says about you. So here's the question. What does God think about us? What is God like? Well, I think the Bible gives us clarity and Jesus shows us in this passage, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Now let me just really quickly give you the, the, the surrounding context. Before our passage, if you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 14, you'll see that Jesus begins his public ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he says, repent and believe. 
The kingdom of God is here. This thing that you've been waiting for has arrived. And here's how you get in on this. You repent and believe, right? And that announcement indicated that the reign and the rule of God was breaking into the brokenness of the world and that through Jesus, the kingdom of God was making a personal appearance to sinners. And so Jesus makes this startling announcement. And here's how you get in on this. And then he begins to do some pretty strange things. If you read through chapter one, he begins to associate with people that you probably shouldn't associate if you're like the king of a kingdom. He starts hanging out with people, people like with demons, people who were ceremonially unclean, viewed as cut off from God, people that would not have been welcome in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the synagogue. They wouldn't have been welcome there because they would have been viewed as unclean, paralytics, lepers, those types of people. He starts to, he starts to hang out with those people. He begins healing people of their diseases and forgiving people of their sins. And the religious experts are aghast at this strange and blasphemous behavior. As a matter of fact, the story right before the story we're going to look at is a story of these four friends who bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. They lower him down to Jesus because they really, really want him to be healed. And Jesus looks and sees their faith and says, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious experts, these Jewish religious elites, they go, how dare you forgive sins? No one can forgive sins but who? But God alone. And so Jesus goes, all right, what's harder? For me to forgive sins or to say to this paralytic, get up and walk. But to show you that I have authority to cast out or to forgive sins, yo, bro, paralyzed guy, get up, walk, take your mat. And that's exactly what happens, right? And so Jesus, in that moment, proved that he himself is the God who forgives sins. And so again, the question comes up, what is God like? Well, Jesus shows us right there. God is a forgiver of sins. God is a forgiver of sins. Now, for many of us, that might be, yeah, we know that. But have you allowed that reality, that truth, to sink into your heart that God is a willing forgiver of your sins even this morning, friend. He is the healer of both physical and spiritual maladies. And so when we finally arrive to verse 13, the stage is set for us to see that Jesus isn't just some guy, but that Jesus is God who's able to forgive sins. So look at verse 13 and 14 again. It says, when he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, for us to get the full weight of what Jesus just did, we need to understand a few things. Remember, he just announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, something that the Jewish people had been longing for and had been asking, how how do we get in on this? When is this going to happen? I want to be involved in this thing. And then Jesus walks up to this tax booth on on the beach and says to the tax collector, you, you're in, follow me. And the guy gets up and follows him. Now, tax collectors were hated people in the first century. They were a hated people. Like, I know that we have a weird relationship with paying taxes. Like, I know, like, no one's, like, excited for April 15th. You know what I mean? Like, we're not like, yes, I can't wait to do that again. It's my favorite tradition. I know we don't feel that way, but, like, Levi here, he wasn't working for H&R Block, Right? This was a different kind of circumstance happening. He was a tax collector, and what that meant that he was working for the Roman Empire and for the crooked Herod Antipas, and what Levi would have done to his own people was extort them out of more money than they actually owed. And not only that, he would have had business dealings 
with Gentiles, which was a huge no-no for Jewish people. As a matter of fact, this guy would have been basically a loan shark who through deception, force, and illegal means stole from his own people. Later Jewish documents, if you study this, later Jewish documents would actually place tax collectors on the same level as thieves and murderers. As a matter of fact, in some cases, they were considered worse than those guys. Like if you were a parent in the first century, the nightmare scenario is not for something bad to happen to your kid. The nightmare scenario was for your kid to grow up and to become a tax collector. And so if you were to walk by a tax collector in the first century, what you might see would be piles of cash that he gained through deception and force. You might see some ledger books so he knows who to go get next. But what you wouldn't see are friends for miles because he would have been a hated person. So when Jesus comes to him and says, follow me, it wasn't just a shock to people around him. It was an absolute scandal. And this invitation to follow reveals the scandalous grace of God. Now, most of us know that we're created in God's image. You've probably heard that. You were part of the Imago Dei. You were created in God's image. But functionally, many of us follow a Jesus created in our own image, right? Let me explain what I mean by that. We tend to think that Jesus agrees with us on most issues. That's our version of Jesus. Jesus, for many of you, Jesus has 100% agreed with your voting record since the day that you could first cast a vote, right? You're thinking, man, this is God's vote that I'm casting right now. Everything that we think, everything that we say, everything, we tend to just think that Jesus feels the same way. He shares our political views. He shares, he, he cares about our favorite sports team, right? Which also means that we think Jesus hates the same people that we hate. He rejects the people we reject. I want you to think of those people that you just have a hard time with. Maybe not, it's not an individual person. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a club. Maybe it's an organization. And it's that group of people that you just, you're just tired of hearing about. And you're just so put off by them. There's a tendency for many of us, though we would not say it out loud, to think that Jesus is put off by them too. But when Jesus calls Levi, into discipleship. He's reminding us that his grace is not confined to the people we think deserve it. As a matter of fact, his grace is even for the people that we would never offer it to. Which is good news because there's many of us in the room we're on the other side of not being liked from someone else. Right? But God's grace is for us too. This is what grace is. Grace is receiving what we could never earn or deserve. This is the definition of grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. So the favor of God, the love of God, the acceptance of God, the forgiveness of God, and the friendship of God are all due to the grace of God towards sinners. Sinners like you and like me and like Levi, the tax collector. And so this is another thing we see about God through Jesus. Not only does God forgive sins, But God is incredibly gracious. 
He is full of grace for people. And his grace extends to all people. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says that as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So not only did Jesus invite Levi to follow him, the very next scene shows that Jesus is now at his house having a dinner party with him, right? Like these are the people Jesus is associating with. And notice who's there. It's other tax collectors and sinners, and not just one or two of them, but many. This is a house full of really terrible people that Jesus is hanging out with. And these sinners were people who couldn't keep the law the way the religious experts thought they should. These aren't necessarily just immoral, irreligious people. These these people were considered sinners ultimately because they couldn't live up to the standards of the religious elites, right? And so you have these scribes of the Pharisees who had these standards, this law that they they should abide by. These people were poor. These people were unable. They had to work all the time, whatever it might be. So they were considered less than. They were considered sinners and outcasts and unworthy because they couldn't live up to the standards of these religious folk. Let me like just lovingly encourage all of the church folk in the room, right? Like there's some of you who church is very new to you. Maybe you recently became a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. If that's you, thank you so much for being here. I hope that you're blessed by your time here. But there's some of you that you, you're like church folk, meaning like when you were born, your parents didn't take you home from the hospital. They took you to church, like right after that. Like you just ended up right in the nursery, right? Other people, right? Like that's, some of us have that experience. And so if that's you, one of the things that tends to keep us from extending grace to people the way Jesus extends grace to us is we have learned to not like people who sin differently than we do. We have learned that our sin is a little bit more palatable than that person's sin. And so when the preacher says something convicting, we don't think of ourselves, we think of that other guy. And I wish he was here. He really needs to hear that, right? And I wish she was in the room. That would have been perfect for what she's dealing with. When we hold people to standards that we aren't able to keep, we are not being holy like Jesus. We're actually being self-righteous like Pharisees. But here we see Jesus reclining at table with tax collectors and sinners, with the outcasts of society, the unwanted, the unlovable, not necessarily the people you'd pick in a draft for the kingdom of God. Like if Jesus is playing fantasy kingdom football, like he's doing a terrible job, right? And according to one commentator, in Jewish society in this time, table fellowship, reclining at tables, what this means, he's enjoying a formal dinner with these people. Table fellowship was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship. Isn't this beautiful? And so we see that Jesus forgives sins. He's incredibly gracious. But here we see through the actions of Jesus that God is also a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And I just want you to recognize the beauty of the gospel here. 
Because when Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God was at hand, he also said what? Repent and believe the gospel. But here, Jesus doesn't wait to show kindness and offer friendship to these outcasts until they repent and believe. Instead, what leads them to repentance and belief in the gospel is that Jesus showed kindness and offered friendship to them while they were still in their sin. This is beautiful. Like Jesus didn't roll up to Levi and say, hey man, you need to figure some stuff out in your life and then you can come follow me. Jesus rolled up to the worst guy on the beach and goes, hey man, you're mine, come follow me. Here's the point. The good news of Jesus is that he welcomes sinners like you and me into friendship with God with no preconditions to his love and acceptance. Commentator James Edwards says this, the scandal of this story is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and acceptance. Rather, listen to this, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. If they forsake their evil and amend their lives, they do so not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus has loved them as sinners. This is really important for us to understand because Jesus wasn't saying, your life is fine. I don't mind your sin. That's not what was happening. Let's not get this twisted. Jesus wasn't tolerating sin and like enjoying it. What was happening was Jesus understood real transformation doesn't come with mere behavior modification that doesn't address the heart. Real transformation comes when we invite sinners into friendship with God and then the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in people's hearts that we could not do on our own. Listen, real transformation doesn't happen when we try to be a different version of ourselves, the kind that we think God would prefer. Real transformation happens when we come to him just as we are because it's his kindness that leads us to real repentance. It's his kindness. So God forgives sin. God is incredibly gracious. He is even a friend of sinners. And we've seen the grace of Jesus towards tax collectors and sinners, but what about the Pharisees? There's some Pharisees in the room, right? What about them? We see in verse 17, let me just read it again. In verse 16, the Pharisees asked, why why are you eating with those folks, those people? And Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And the point Jesus is making here is not that there are some people who don't need a savior, but some people who don't think that they do, right? There are some people who don't think that they do. Now before, when I was kind of struggling with my view of God, feeling like he was just some grumpy curmudgeon up in the sky who was just frustrated with everybody, I struggled when I read this because I assumed that Jesus was just putting these Pharisees in their place, right? Like he was putting these punks down, like you don't belong here, right? I read Jesus' word as if he was having this mic drop moment, as if he was making it very clear to these guys that I'm with those people, not with you people, and I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. I assume Jesus had no grace for the Pharisees. But when I read this passage today, I see that Jesus had tons of grace for everyone in the room. Obviously the tax collectors and the sinners, but even the guys who show up and say, Jesus, why are you eating with those people? And when Jesus responds the way that he does, he's not saying, 
I don't love you. He's not saying, I just love those people. He's inviting them to see themselves as those people so that they too could experience friendship with God. Listen, church, the grace of God always goes farther than we expect, both to the sinner and to the self-righteous. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that by his grace, the sinner becomes righteous and the self-righteous is forgiven all his sin. This is who God is. This is what he does. He's a friend of sinners who through grace is welcoming all people into friendship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what God thinks of you. Whether you identify mostly with the tax collector, the sinner, or the scribe of the Pharisee, you have been created in the image of God and the grace of God has been extended to you. So listen to this. So that your primary identity would not be all of that other stuff. Your primary identity would be that you are a redeemed child of God, holy and beloved of the Most High. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, let me just give two points of application. There are some of you in the room this morning, you would not call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're skeptical of the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you're just here because a family member invited you. It's Labor Day week and you thought you'd show up. Jesus is actually inviting you into the party this morning. Maybe you're like the tax collector and sinner. You feel like an outcast. You feel dirty, unwanted, unloved by God and by other people. You feel like that. But actually what this story is teaching us this morning is that Jesus welcomes you and invites you into friendship with God. So maybe what you need to do this morning with this story is you need to repent and believe the gospel, not to try to earn right standing before God, not to try to earn God's love for you, but because through Jesus you've already been offered it. Or maybe you identify more with the scribes of the Pharisees. You've done church for a long time. You've just kind of been playing the thing. You kind of know the rules. You become ungracious, unloving. You've been depending upon your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own strength and abilities. Jesus is inviting you to the party as well. But all that he wants you to bring is an honest confession of your sin so that you can drink deep of his grace. He's inviting you in. Now, there are some of you in the room, you would call yourself a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian. Like Levi, when Jesus called out to him and said, follow me, and he followed him, that's the same. It's your story too. Jesus called you, follow me, and you, you did the very same thing. But following Jesus, for, for, for many of us, doesn't, well, for all of us, it doesn't just include agreeing with what he said, but actually living how he lived. So let me just challenge you with this. One of the primary ways that we should be like Jesus is that we need to learn to love our neighbors the way that God loved his, the way that Jesus loved his. And the way that we should show the love of God and the grace of God is through hospitality. It's through hospitality. Let me break this down. This is what this story is all about in the first place. The story of Jesus and the tax collectors and sinners is actually a story about the hospitality of God towards sinners. And hospitality is actually more than entertaining your friends. Biblical hospitality is the act of creating a safe and welcoming place where the stranger can be converted to a friend and where the other, those people, can be turned into a brother or sister. 
This is what we're doing at the Well Church all the time. Our primary way that we're trying to call our people to live on mission is through, to borrow a phrase from Rosario Butterfield, to, to pursue radical, ordinary hospitality to our neighbors. Listen, when it comes to the mission of the church, when it comes to loving the city, when it comes to reaching people, you may not be able to preach a sermon. God may not be calling you to be a traveling evangelist to preach the gospel to people. You may not be able to lead worship, but do you know what every person in this room does multiple times a day? You eat. You're going to eat several meals. As a matter of fact, you're going to go after this, you're going to go have a meal, aren't you? And then a few hours later, you're going to... some of y'all are like varsity at eating. You do like five or six meals a day, right? Like you just crush it all the time. You're doing like fourth meal, fifth meal. You're like Taco Bell's still open, sixth meal. You can handle that, right? What would it look like if the normal rhythms of your life, of eating, of gathering around a table with your family, of going to a place to have conversation, those normal rhythms, things that you're already doing, you began to incorporate other people, your neighbors, your coworkers, so that you could create a warm and welcoming environment so that those people who are strangers of God through conversation might become friends of God just through ordinary hospitality. This is what Jesus did. Jesus turned the dining room into a sacred place where sinners could feast on the true bread and be satisfied. So Christian, let me just challenge you sometime this month. As a matter of fact, I heard there's a game on tonight. There's like no OU fans in here at all. Are there? I see some OU. Like, yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Worship service starting back up. Here we go. Sometime this month, maybe even tonight. Invite your neighbors over. Go buy a couple of pizzas. Invite your neighbors over. Listen to their story. And then as the Spirit leads you, show them how their story connects with the story of the gospel. What is God like? He is full of grace. He's a friend of sinners. He willingly forgives. He's eager to forgive. And he loves to welcome all who would come repent, and believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness in your word. In the ministry of Jesus that we get to look at, that Jesus wasn't afraid to go to the fringes, but he saw his mission to be be that of loving sinners and tax collectors and welcoming them into friendship with you. And so God, I thank you. Like Paul said, that I'm the chief of sinners. I thank you, Jesus, that you intervene in my life. I thank you that there's a church full of people whose lives you've intervened into and you've welcomed them into friendship with God. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in the room who does not know friendship with Jesus, would you grant them grace and the ability to see and taste and see that Jesus is good this morning? And Lord, would you mobilize this church to to see their homes not as castles for personal refuge, but as embassies of the kingdom of God so that we might see radical, ordinary hospitality begin to multiply through the city so that more and more people, neighbors, coworkers, family members, might come into relationship with Christ. Would you bless Redemption Church so that scores of people, men, women, and children, their testimony would include that they experience the redeeming love of Christ to this body of believers 
Thank you for your grace, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.